In 2015, Michael Curry was elected presiding bishop. Not long after, the Episcopal Church voted to bless same-sex marriages. So everyone was talking about the first black presiding bishop in a predominantly white denomination and now a very gay church. All were wondering, what's it like? Bishop Curry was interviewed by the New York Times. And he began the interview with a story some of you may have heard about his parents sitting in an Episcopal pew in 1940s Ohio. When they received Eucharist, he said, they drank from the same communion cup as the white folks. Curry named this family story as one of the signposts that marked his call toward Episcopal priesthood. But when the reporter asked him directly, what's it like being the first black presiding bishop? Curry's response was simply, for who? What's it like for who? Meaning, are you wanting to know what it's like for me, Michael? Or what it's like for white people? Or what it's like for black people? Or what it's like for LGBTQ people? Whose perspective do you want? This question, for who, seems to me to be an important question to ask every time questions of justice are brought forward. Justice for who? Through whose eyes are we seeing? Whose suffering are we naming? And for whose idea of justice are we fighting? In his interview, Bishop Curry connected the exclusion and bigotry experienced by black people to the exclusion and bigotry experienced by gay people. He empathized with LGBTQ folks who have had to live with not being accepted by the Church of Jesus Christ. And he urged bishops from around the world to consider, to consider whether, and I quote, the love of God is big enough to embrace all of us and even embrace us in our disagreements. The New York Times reporter latched onto that and pressed Curry by what he meant by this. Did the good bishop believe that those who oppose gay marriage are like those in the church who opposed slavery, simply standing on the wrong side of history? No, Curry said emphatically. I don't want to say that anyone is on the wrong side of history. I respect differences and different perspectives. So the reporter pressed further. Is it that you do not want to say they are wrong or you do not believe that they are wrong? What I believe, Curry replied, about human equality and dignity is grounded in what I believe about the love of God. Love is not coercive. So I have to respect my siblings who differ on this question enough not to be coercive. Love is not coercive, Bishop Curry teaches us in his New York Times interview. God welcomes opinions, the Apostle Paul teaches us in today's epistle to the Romans. Welcome those who are weak in faith, Paul writes, for they are welcomed by God. But welcome them not for the purpose of quarreling 
over opinions. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Let each be fully convinced in their own minds, for all Christians do what they do in honor of the Lord and to give thanks to God. So why do you pass judgment on your siblings in Christ? Why do you despise your siblings? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will be accountable to God. Paul is drilling into the Roman church awareness of difference. He wants Christians to know that within the body of Christ, there will always be disputable things. In ancient Greek, this concept is known as a diaphora, a word that translates as things indifferent. In Greek ethics, a diaphora is neither vice nor virtue. And in Christian ethics, ideophora is that which God neither bids nor forbids. A term that describes the meaningless distinctions between things and conditions that people experience. Paul talks about things like food and days of the week, and Bishop Curry talks about conditions like race and gender and sexuality and even physiological sex, because how all of these things are determined is disputable. The real question here is not who's right and who's wrong, but rather, what's it like for who? Let's consider this question from Bishop Curry today on UBE Sunday a day where we honor black Episcopalians and we remember the life of Alexander Crummel. What might it have been like, I wonder, for Alexander Crummel 200 years ago as a young person full of dreams who was denied access to General Episcopal Theological Seminary in New York because of the color of his skin? What might it have been like for him to have to study for the priesthood privately, to have to prove his academics simply so that he could be admitted by the church? And once he was priested, and he was, what was it like for him to apply for canonical residency in Pennsylvania and be denied again? What was it like to beg a bishop and to be told that it's fine he could join the diocese, but only without voice or seat to vote. And I wonder what it felt like for him after that when he denied Pennsylvania access to him and instead went back to the Diocese of New York to start an Episcopal mission for black folks. What did it feel like then when he worked so hard but he didn't have enough money or social support to build what he wanted to build? What was it like for him when he left his home for England to attend Queen's College, Cambridge, and to graduate in 1853, second only to W.E.B. Du Bois as the most educated black person in the United States? And then, what was it like to return home in 1868 and be named chair of the newly founded Union of Black Clergy and laity, now known as UBE, the Union of Black Episcopalians? 
What was it like for those 20 years in between, living in and out of Africa, discovering ways to strengthen the solidarity, the solidarity between indigenous and diasporas of African ancestry? What was it like to then return and become rector of a black church in D.C., one established for the servants of rich white Episcopalians who lived near the White House? And then to leave that call with 50 of those parishioners to establish the first Episcopal church independently funded, constructed, and run by black people. St. Luke's was established in 1876, and that church became a religious center for black Episcopalians. What was that like? And then what was it like to found the American Negro Academy a decade later and have W.E.B. Du Bois himself become a member? What was it like to live all that and then to die a year later? From my perspective and the perspective of many others throughout history, Alexander Crummel achieved great things. But what was it like for Alexander Crummel? Du Bois knew him well and wrote about him in his book, Souls of Black Folk. From him and others, we learn that despite his many accomplishments, Crummel died with some dreams deferred. Because of racism, he could not become who he wanted to be. Du Bois said Crummel was both a refined gentleman and also at times patronizing, thoughtless, and hostile. He was a man to be admired, but also a man who had known too much discrimination. He had walked too long in what Du Bois called the Valley of Humiliation. Regardless of how we remember Alexander Crummel, we must also remember that he died sadly, believing he did not live up to his full potential. Fast forward with me 200 years into the future to September 2023 in Cleveland, Ohio, and imagine with me a queer child growing up in your neighborhood. Let's consider what it might be like for that young person full of dreams to be denied access to the schooling they desire, not because of the color of their skin this time, but because of their choice in clothing and the length of their hair. Perhaps some of you heard the local news just these last two weeks New Catholic Diocese of, o, of Cleveland policy bars gender-affirming care. And no, this new policy isn't just about medical procedures. It forbids the use of certain pronouns, of chosen names, of clothing with rainbow designs on them, and of haircuts that express a gender other than that associated with the sex assigned at birth. Two people of the same sex cannot attend a school dance together. If someone's name is legally changed, the school will not amend their records to reflect that change. Now perhaps, perhaps this queer child we are imagining grows up in this environment and becomes an advocate for change in their community or even in the world, as Crummel did. Perhaps this child becomes an icon of what faith-based gender-affirming care looks like for every generation that follows, and perhaps they are self-made and well-educated, and they too become presidents of boards and founders of institutions, and yet despite all this deep down, they too, as Alexander Crummel knew, 
felt that they could have been more. Not more in the sense that they could have done more or have been more of a poster child for the cause, but simply that they could have been more themselves. Maybe Crummel didn't want to lead a racial justice movement. Maybe he did. Or maybe he wanted to lead the quiet life of an intellectual, as W.E.B. Du Bois infers. Will our children in Cleveland, Ohio, be allowed the right of self-determination, or will they be denied it over and over again, as Alexander Crummel was? And who will they become because of it? As human beings, we can become so enamored and inspired by the lives of those who have lived through racism and sexism and segregation and bigotry that we forget to hear their personal plea to be allowed simply to be themselves. I think that was the plea hidden in Bishop Curry's interview with the New York Times. What's it like for who? And he's not alone. Every human being should be afforded the legal right to self-determination, legal in the books of nations and legal in the books of religions. Because when we argue about what t-shirt people must wear or what shape their noses must be or how they have to style their hair, we lay waste to our relationships with one another. A kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, Jesus says to his followers in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Good or evil, he says, are not determined by external things. That which comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God will forgive every sin except one, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That same chapter in which Jesus speaks these words, he is faced with a human being suffering on the Sabbath. He chooses to work a miracle. On a day, the religious law says there must be no work. He heals a man with a wounded hand. Where others saw law, Jesus saw a disputable thing hiding a person. Who is the Sabbath for? he asked the religious leaders. What's it like for who? What's the experience like for the one who is suffering on the Sabbath, he asks his followers. One priest who was interviewed by Cleveland.com regarding this new Catholic policy wondered aloud, who suffers under policies made over disputable things? We used to teach that it was a sin to eat meat on Friday, he said. We also taught that black people don't have souls. There are many things that the Catholic Church has taught over the centuries, that our church has taught over the centuries, that we no longer teach anymore. The lesbian parents of one of my son's friends who attends a local Catholic primary school texted me last week with these words, my priest has been so good toward us. Hopefully the spirit of Christianity wins out. Will we let the true spirit of Christianity win out? 
Will we let the love of God be big enough to embrace all of us and even embrace us in our disagreements? For too long, the church has quibbled and squabbled over disputable things and forgotten the people who suffer under the arguments around them. Like a pile of dirty laundry, humanity has a long history of heaping detail upon detail to obstruct and hide the indisputable thing from our view. Jesus makes it clear that it is never okay to choose neglect over healing. It is never okay to do nothing as someone in the midst of us suffers. The dignity of life is eternally valued. The value of life is the indisputable thing. The color of your skin, the days of the week you work, the shape of your body, the food you eat, the flags you fly, the people you love, these are neither rights nor wrongs. They are simply ways of doing and being. When asked, what it was like to be the first black presiding bishop in a predominantly white church, Bishop Curry said he didn't really think about it all that much. And I think that's because Michael Curry is shaped by the words and the way of Jesus, who teaches us to be indifferent about these things. I wonder if arguing over a diaphora is what Jesus meant by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. For when we argue over disputable things over and over until we lay waste to human beings, we are also laying waste to the body of Christ, to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of us. Maybe this is why Jesus and Paul tell us not to argue, not to quibble about disputable things, and maybe it's also why following Jesus is so hard because it often feels to us like we are on the right side of the argument, doesn't it? It often feels like we aren't the weak ones in faith, they are. We have such certitude that our perspective is the right perspective and the only perspective worth seeing, but no matter which way we see a disputable thing, it will always remain disputable. And the more we argue about it, the more we hide the indisputable thing, the more we hide human lives from view. So if in these coming weeks you see a Catholic school child wearing rainbow socks, or white socks after Labor Day for that matter, <laughs> will you see a flag waving an opinion, or will you see a person? When you notice someone has a particular color of skin or a particular texture to their hair or a particular contour to their face, will you see a race or will you see a soul? Neither of these actions or conditions of human beings require deep moral reflection. They simply are what they are. And if God says that's okay, then we need to tear up our lists of disputable things. Arguing over disputable things ruins lives. So much so that extraordinarily, extraordinarily talented human beings can die feeling sad and unaccomplished. We must let every living creature live and die 
under the gaze of not our particular opinions and judgments, but rather to live and die in God alone. We are all the weak ones in faith that Paul is talking about, every one of us. And this is only good news to us when we realize that it, our weakness means that we have nothing but God's grace to rely on to move forward, nothing but God's grace to help us move forward together. We all have holes in our moral arguments. None of us know the right way to go, which is why we have to follow Jesus' way of love. For scripture tells us it is only unfailing love for one another that will cover a multitude of sin. That's it. So the next time a disputable thing is brought up, rather than pass judgment on other children of God, let's listen and consider what it's like for who and welcome each perspective of every soul in the school halls of God's grace, where we can be tutored as siblings in the eternal household of God's unfailing love.